Hello, I'm Casey. And I'm Emily. And you're listening to A Sprinkle of Sugar, A Dash of Murder, a true crime podcast with an element of baking. And what are we doing this week? So this week we are covering a case in Sacramento, California. I don't know anything about it at all, actually. I, Yeah, you haven't given me any clues. You're so right. I um, realized that too. I didn't even tell you who it was. <laughs> no. So anyway, when you said California, I was I was thinking of okay, food in California. And the first thing that came to mind was when you and I went to San Francisco. Yeah. And um then when I think about the food that we had, I can only think of one thing that we had the whole time. And that was a massive burrito. Yes. Do you remember? Do you do you know where I'm going with this story? Yeah, I think so. I think I'm going to embarrass myself pretty bad, <laughs> but I think that a lot of people can relate. Um, so I'm a really shy pooper when it comes to vacation. Because <laughs> I'm like, ew, Casey, just stop talking. But also, we talk about murder, so I feel like we can also talk about. Poop. We can handle it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm I'm a shy pooper when it comes to vacation. And this trip was going to be like six days. And I was fully ready. Like, I had a conversation with my bowels beforehand. Like, can you guys take this? Because I'm sharing a room with two other girls. There's no way I'm going to be pooping at all. Um, So I kind of already knew. Like, that's just like how my body is. I'm sure a lot of people are like that. Anyway, so I we were on day like four or five. Mm-hmm. And... um. I had this massive burrito. I mean, it was like the size of our head, right? Yeah, like it was. It was, it was, it was yeah, and it was. I ate every single bite of that. So afterwards, they were joking around and they were like, they being Jesse, her dad, her mom. Mm-hmm. And I think like you and I were just kind of like listening. I don't know. I don't think that we were really participating in this conversation. But they're just like a very open family that talks about everything, really, which is nice. Yeah. But anyway, they're talking about something about pooping. I don't know. Uh-huh. And I kind of made a comment. I was like, oh, I haven't pooped yet. And her dad was like, Casey, it's been five days. If you haven't pooped yet, he's like, you better poop by tomorrow morning. If you don't, I'm taking you to the emergency room. That is not okay. <laughs> and he was serious. Yeah. He was telling me, like, and, um, you know, that you would think that that would have scared the poop out of me. Right. No. Nope. I, I just told him that I went, even though I didn't. I never went that whole trip. And oh I even God. thought about it afterwards. I'm like, where the heck did that burrito go? Because I was like, yeah, okay. No, same <laughs> though. Because, like, that was me the 10 days we were in Canada, like, out in the <laughs> woods that whole time. No, no. So <laughs> my well, body is a steel trap. <laughs> well, of course not, because uh, you and I would go to the to the grumper together <laughs> emily and i when we were in canada on that 10-day trip and we'd have to go to the bathroom in the woods we'd go together one of us would watch out for bears with the bear spray the and the bear other spray. One would... yeah <laughs> the other one and it was either go with a friend to the grumper or bury it in the ground i said no <laughs> and remember the one time that i went by myself um is when that eagle started attacking the loon and and so I was up in the bathroom by myself and I was taking a minute 
And everybody thought, so this all of a sudden an eagle started attacking a, a loon baby. So the mother loon was freaking out and screaming. Mm-hmm. And everyone thought that it was me screaming from the grandpa. They're like, where's Casey? Where's Casey? There's a bear. Like everyone thought that I was just screaming. And then they look out in the middle of the, the lake and they see a, an eagle swooping down on a loon. Yeah. I'm like, you think I sound like a loon? <laughs> <laughs> wow. That's, this, this went off topic. Anyway, yeah, that's okay. I think this week is burritos. Um, just take your favorite burrito fixins, lettuce, beef, steak, whatever, rice, guacamole, mm-hmm. hot sauce, salsa, not cilantro because cilantro is disgusting. I also hate cilantro. Good. So, agree. But, and some hot sauce, whatever. Ooh, I love burritos. Same. Mm. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, let's get started. So, yes. So today is um the case of Dorothea Puente. And yeah, this happened in Sacramento, 1988. Um at the time there was a growth spurt of the city. There were new developments happening, but there were also homeless people like everywhere. And at that time, one in five homeless people who like sought help were turned away um, because there weren't resources to help them so it was kind of desperate time for homeless people um and one of these men who was homeless was named alvaro gonzalez montoya but everyone called him bert uh he was born in costa rica and came uh to america at 16 and he was diagnosed with schizophrenia at 16 years old and they put him in a mental institution but he was having shock therapy, so it like that's not a really great thing, not a great treatment. No, so no, really. he left there, but then had no home, nowhere to go. Um, he ended up living in a detox home, even though he was not an alcoholic, just to have somewhere to go, and because he liked the community. Um, and he met this woman named Judy there, and Judy really wanted to help him find somewhere to live, so. Dorothea Puente's home was highly recommended. She was loved by her community, that she really took care of her clients. Like, she took care of, like, homeless people who came and stayed with her. Um, She was loved by politicians, local politicians, because she donated to them a lot. She donated to charities. She gave away food to the community. So she always, like, seemed like this philanthropic person. I think I said that right. (laughs) So, yeah. Isn't it... uh philanthropic wait i think it's I, I philanthropy like but i think when you're saying like you're a <laughs> like describing what kind of person you are it's philanthropic oh i see i like how the first time i try to pitch in i pitch in something <laughs> like i'm like in my head i said it and it sounded good and they said it out loud i was like that's not right <laughs> <laughs> that's okay i uh Never mind. It's not important. I won't tell that story. <laughs> Please <right> continue. <laughs> okay. Um, okay, so Dorothea lived on the top floor of her house, and the people she took in, like, lived below. There was, like, a living space with some rooms um, below her. And she, again, took in, like, mental patients, people with disabilities, and people with not a lot of contact with their family or, like, had no one around. Um And she could sign checks for these people because technically they owed her rent, but they didn't, like, have any means to give her rent. So she was like, I'll just accept your disability checks or your social security checks 
on me. And they were like, okay, great. And they agreed to that. And she was able to control their bank money and everything. Um, Is that okay? Is that legal? It's not really. But (laughs) these people are like, she's so nice. She's giving me free food and boarding. It's the least I could do to chip in, you know? Like, yeah. Right. But it's not really legal, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So Judy went to check out Dorothea's house with Bert. And Dorothea seemed very sweet. She was, like, feeding a box of kittens when they met. And Judy saw another man that she had formerly helped out. Um, named John Sharp living there. So she said, oh, if John's here, like, I trust him. He seems like he's doing well. I think Bert could live here, too. Um, And Judy was kind of asking her about how she, like, lived with these people. And Dorothea said she was independently wealthy. And she really liked helping people. Um, But wouldn't explain, really, how she came into the money of able being able to support so many people in her home. Stuff like that. Um, and Bert had no family, so Dorothea said she would sign everything to be his payee for his, like, social security checks. So now she's getting his money as well, and it, I think that is legal, that they, like, did all the paperwork so that she was I see. So, perhaps she did the same thing with all these other people, too. Okay. Um, yeah. So... Bert really did start to thrive and, like, have friendships there, and Judy would check in on him, like, every, like every week. Um, but as he was getting better, she went less and less, but she still called on the phone to check up on him. And after a few months of him being there, Judy called, and Dorothea said, oh, Bert's in Mexico staying with my brother. And Judy was very suspicious. She's like, no, that's really not like Bert. Like, he wouldn't go take a trip anywhere. He's very much, like, you know, he wouldn't do that kind of thing. Um, and, right. and like, why would she, like, she's supposed to be taking care of him and just sending him off with someone else. It's just really bizarre. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's like taking someone from, like, uh, a nursing, an assisted living home, just randomly out on a trip. Like, even yeah. though they might be their own independent person, like, they're still not able to speak for exactly. themselves. Exactly. They need <laughs> care, yeah. Um, so Dorothea told Judy, oh, he'll be back possibly Friday. So Judy called on that Friday and Dorothea said, oh, they pushed it back a little. It'll maybe be next week. Don't worry about it. And Judy said, no, on Monday, if he's not here, I'm calling the police and saying there's a missing person. And Monday morning, Judy gets a phone call from a man named Don Anthony saying Bert was no longer living in Dorothea's house, that he came back from Mexico and his family came and picked him up. So Bert was going to go live with his family now. And Excuse me? <laughs> yeah. It's a, little, it's a little sus. A little fishy. Yeah. And Judy doesn't believe this at all, as she shouldn't. And she contacted her friend, John Sharp, and he said that Bert was not in the house and had not been in the house for a while. And um judy asked him did anybody go to mexico like were you visiting dorothea's brother and he said no nobody has left and or left like to mexico like not on a trip and judy asked is there anything wrong going on in this house and john said yeah something's definitely wrong she's been digging a lot of holes lately so not a good sign 
you know, if you're living in a home like this and you're just noticing all of a sudden, like, oh, hey, yeah, this guy is missing. Oh, a lot of holes are being dug. Like, I guess, I mean, these people are in there for a reason. A lot of it is mental disability. So I guess maybe they don't have the capacity to, like, yeah, think for themselves like that. But that's Mm -hmm. a really scary situation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Dorothea was born in 1929. Her parents died very young. Um, in Southern California in 1948, she was convicted of felony forgery for writing bad checks. And she was also arrested in the 50s for being a prostitute. And in April 1960, she was arrested and sentenced um, to jail for a few years for being the madam uh, of a brothel, so operating and running a brothel, which was against the law. Um, so she's not a stranger to the law. She's been arrested. Yeah, a few times. she's really putting on that she's this uh, really good citizen, but sounds like yeah. she's gotten into some trouble before. Yeah, she's she's a bit shady. Um, <laughs> shady. In 1982, Dorothea meets Malcolm McKenzie at a bar. And they have drinks and they go to his house and he finds himself like laying uh, either on the couch, I think it was, or on the floor, um, paralyzed. But he's able to like see, like his eyes can move and he's able to see and like fully comprehend mentally what's going on. Um, And she went through all his stuff and stole his items, took his valuables. She even walked over to him and like took the ring off his finger um and left him there she had stolen a bunch of his things but when he like comes to he obviously knows what was going on because he could see and hear everything still even though he couldn't move and he went to the police about it um and she's arrested again for poisoning him (laughs) and for theft do you know Um, what she used to poison him um it was some kind of tranquilizer i don't know the name of it though yeah okay um she was posing as a medical doctor to elderly women at the time also and taking advantage of them. And she even carried around a medical bag with like little props in it, like a stethoscope and everything. I said that right, right? The thing you like listen to hearts. Yep. yep <laughs> I should know that. I mean, yeah. I mean, I did know it, but I always doubt myself. Okay. Anyway. um, And she always would slip her victims like some sort of paralyzing drug so that she could steal from them. Um, and she's arrested and went to prison for five years for five felony charges for this. Yeah. Um, I mean, just imagine that if you're one of the victims, like, it's not like you're knocked out and you don't know what happens and you wake up and all your stuff is gone. Like, you're literally yeah. watching someone steal your stuff. Yeah. Um, physically off your body, a ring off his body, and can't do anything to stop it. Right. And it's it's interesting the drug that she chose too. Again, I don't know what the name of it is, but um, like, did she know they would still be lucid enough to like identify her and point out that it was her and what she did? You know, like if she was smarter, or maybe she wasn't able to get on her hands on a drug that would like completely knock them out. But like, not saying I want her to be smarter, but you know what I mean, like. You'd think right. if you were going to steal things, you wouldn't give them something where they could still be watching and listening to you. Yeah, I'm curious to know what drug that is, because if it's a paralytic like that, 
like that's pretty hard to get that's pretty equivalent to getting a medication that's gonna knock you out yeah so that's really interesting i wonder what she got um so in 1982 when she's arrested um the detective who arrested her got a phone call saying hey we think dorothea poisoned our mother because at this point she's like in the news and their mother's name was ruth monroe she had started seeing a man named harold and met dorothea at a bar um where she was a part-time cook and they became friends and dorothea and ruth wanted to open a restaurant together and so they went in on it together and then dorothea would tell ruth oh i need more money to keep it going the restaurant's not doing well we i need more money so ruth kept giving her this money thinking it's for the restaurant <laughs> so harold died and Ruth didn't want to live alone, so she moved in with Dorothea after that. Um, and Ruth's son, Bill, remembers that the last three days that he saw his mom, she had a drink in her hand, which he thought was very weird because she never drank alcohol um, because she was actually allergic to alcohol. Um, but said that Dorothea had been making her drinks to help calm her nerves. Um but yeah, so her son was like thinking it was weird anyway. And the next day, Bill comes over and Dorothea says, oh, Ruth is sleeping right now. Don't bother her. But he goes up to Ruth's room and finds her in like this paralyzed state. And her eyes were open, but she couldn't move or speak. And Bill thought Dorothea was a nurse because she had said she was. And he said, oh, Dorothea will take care of you. And everything will be okay. Right. And the thing is, like, your initial thought is she's having a stroke. Like, there's a medical emergency. You wouldn't think mm -hmm. that something malicious was going on at all. Yeah. Um, And the next day after that, Bill gets a call from his sister saying that their mom, Ruth, had died. And Dorothea had called and said, come and get your mom's stuff. And when the sister showed up to get her things, all she got was an empty purse. And Ruth had money, jewelry. She was living there and like everything was gone. And Dorothea said, oh, your mom gave everything to me. So they're my, it's my stuff. Um, oh. excuse me? That is so, yeah. like, like, that's not even believable. Like she had children. Yeah. Why would she yeah. just give it to this lady? Why would she give it all to her? You know, that doesn't make sense. No. And Dorothea called the coroner and told them that Ruth had committed suicide which is completely out there. Like, there's no way. Well, and, I mean, that's obvious. Like, the family can, I don't know, it's just, you can't tell two different stories to family and the coroner because they're right. going to get found out. Yeah. Um, The coroner found a lot of toxic drugs in Ruth's system, and Ruth's children knew it was murder, and they went to prosecutors about it, and they said, hey, we want to charge... For murder we believe dorothea killed her this wasn't suicide this wasn't you know an accident or anything like that um and dorothea had drained the joint bank account that her and ruth had shared and like took all of that money as well so i mean it's looking very suspicious and she's not even trying to hide that so but unfortunately there was no way to determine that she had not committed suicide because the kind of testing was not available at the time. 
And there wasn't really evidence that Dorothea had actually done it. Well, yeah, I mean, that's hard anyway, because if there's toxic drugs, she could have ingested them herself. So, yeah, I mean, it could like just devil's advocate. It could be true, you know? Mm hmm. Hmm. Yep. Um, so Dorothea started taking in tenants at her own home after that to make sure it was like always under her own watch and under in her property. Um, and, but as part of her parole from her previous felonies, she was not supposed to be a caregiver at all. And she would be inspected from time to time by a parole officer, but she was always so charming and like able to say things to them that they wouldn't be suspicious of even when they came over. So she has lots of personalities. Um, she was also married four times. And she changed her name a lot. Um, and she would register a lot of things under her different married names to continue with her unlicensed caregiving, which is kind of how she got away with it for a while because record keeping wasn't as like great back then either. So it was easier for her. Honestly, I mean, before computers and the internet being so easy to access now, I get it. Like yeah. a lot of it was on paper. How do you really keep track of that? Exactly. Be difficult, for sure. So, Officer uh, Detective John Cabrera went to Dorothea's house because of Judy's missing person report on Bert. And they spoke with the boarders, and everyone had, like, the same exact story. That Bert was picked up by a family member, and they all said it, like, the same, which, you know, looks suspicious. Because even if the story is true, people tell different, like, nuances to their story and stuff like that you don't say like the same thing right i'm sure that's a way that uh um interrogators are taught that's like if their story matches exactly then it's probably a lie yeah like saying like the same like wording of things exactly and john sharp who was judy and bert's friend slipped um the detective a note that said, she wants me to lie to you. And John later said he didn't know what happened to Bert, but he knew that the story she was telling them wasn't true, which is why he decided to like slip the note to them and try and like be like, hey, something's definitely up here. Um, So this John guy, I mean, I wonder what his circumstances were, why he was in the home. I believe he was... Um, an ex-veteran and he had a disability but he was like mentally okay it was like physical a physical disability for him okay yeah um she had told all of her tenants that sorry like my back hurts i'm trying to fix my um she had told all of the police that or goddamn she had told all of her tenants that the police were coming and had instructed them to tell the police that they were seeing Bert and, you know, telling them their whole story and everything. Um, but this is very suspicious. And Cabrera finds out about her criminal past. He does a, he does some digging and is able to, like, find her different names in the system and stuff like that, like, in the records. Which took him a while, obviously, because it's a paper trail. And, but he finds it. So with all of that, like, can you just imagine 
I mean, like we said, like, okay, some of them have physical disabilities. Some of them are just homeless. Some of them do have mental disabilities. Mm-hmm. Like, how can you honestly trust a bunch of people to keep your secret safe or to tell it the way that you want it? I know. To not, not just, like, blurt out, like, oh, um, someone just told me to tell you this. Like, how is it actually executed so well? Like, I wonder yeah. what she was telling them. Because also, you're like, okay, this woman is telling me to say this to police officers, basically lied to police officers. Yeah. Obviously, that's that's guilty. Yeah. That's yeah, it is interesting. I didn't think about that. Like, anyone could have just blurted out anything, but yeah. Right. Um. So, Judy insists, hey, John said something about digging up holes... She tells the police, you have to investigate her yard. You have to. So, and the detectives agree, like, yeah, we should look into that. So they go back and question Dorothea. And she says she went to church the day, the last day she saw Bert and that everything was normal. And the detective asked her exactly, like, what exactly are you running in your home here with all these people? And she looked at her parole officer and said, well, I am in violation of my parole. So she like, admits that um admits that she's caregiving but she's like i just want to help people like that's her story like i'm just trying to help people you know i'm trying to turn my life around and their life around and they're like well can we search your home we're gonna look around isn't that a tactic that people do where it's like they admit a less serious crime yes yeah it's like a common thing like they'll be like Oh, I didn't shoot the guy, but I did rob the place. It's like right. They feel like okay, I'm admitting something, but it's not like the big thing. Right. Yeah. To try and be like, oh, see, I'm cooperating. Yeah. Um, like try and get a lesser charge and whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Like I'm being honest here. See, I admitted that I'm breaking the law, just not in that way. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um. So when they're searching her home, they found little blue pills in everybody's room. And the pills were for sleeping disorders, but nobody there had sleeping disorders. Um, So then they asked for permission to dig in her yard. And she said, oh, what for? And they said, oh, just to give Judy peace of mind that there's nothing there. You know, like, they're giving that tactic like obviously there's nothing there it's just because you know judy wants us to look we kind of have to you know like uh. and she was like okay yeah you can do that um so they start digging holes in her garden and they find garbage like eggshells paper like cigarette buds and they're kind of like oh well it's just garbage nothing really major and dorothea the whole time is like standing in the doorway like just staring like watching them um but then they start finding cloth and they kept pulling it up pulling up all the cloth and found like little leather pieces that cabrera said looked like really dried beef jerky and then the shovel hit something hard and cabrera gives it a hard tug and pulls it out and it was a femur bone um ah yeah and he immediately was like, ah, no, let, dropped it, like, let go. Um, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Imagine thinking you're grabbing a root and pulling on it and it's a femur. Yeah. Uh, um, so that obviously, obviously led to other remains and that uh, 
leather pieces was skin from the victims. Oh, then, how does that happen? Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. They said, like, the skin had, like, fallen off from the bone, but then, like, dried and, like, what's the word? I don't know. Been preserved somehow. Yeah. Like that. I wonder, ah! I wonder how, like, if it was just because it was so hot or if, like, I don't know. Because usually it takes, like, salt to do that. Yeah. Ooh. I don't even know. Um, so then Dorothea and her tenants are taken in for questioning, like, why are there bodies in your yard? And she was completely emotionless. Kept saying, I don't know anything. I don't know how that got there. I don't know who those people are. Like, nothing. Um... And so they kept digging the next day, and Dorothea asks Rara, am I under arrest? Because I'd like to go get a cup of coffee at my nephew's across the street, because there's, like, a little cafe across the street from her house. And they don't really have any, like, this sounds really strange to me, because you're literally digging up bodies in her yard, but they don't really have anything to pin it on her, No, uh, nothing like that. So Cabrera says, sure, no problem, you can go across the street, go get a coffee um and they keep digging that is so weird to me i mean like maybe they just think that maybe she's just like this innocent little lady and they just think that she's no harm like they honestly believed it i mean i can see how maybe she doesn't want to get caught as a caregiver so like when people die she just takes them on herself to bury them like maybe it's like more of a like in their minds they're thinking there's more you okay beans okay uh, there's more of like an innocent um what is going on with you girlfriend you okay you're drinking some water went down the wrong pipe <laughs> anyway um a more innocent uh thing behind it like even though she is breaking the law it's not nearly as bad as like girlfriend killing them herself yeah herself okay i'm gonna mute myself again sure um so after she leaves they find another body and that's when they're like oh you know something is definitely weird it's not just one body so let's go get her let's go get her she should she should be here um but then obviously as they should have guessed she had fled she was not across the street getting coffee and they put out a wanted persons report and this manhunt starts for her FBI is involved now. The media is like trying to track her down, like reporters. Um, she was gone, but she had given them permission to search her house. So even though she wasn't there, they continued to do so and they excavated the entire yard. And the next body they find is about 200 pounds. And Cabrera is certain that this is Bert. He's the third body that they found. Um, and they find ultimately seven. Seven bodies in her yard. So, you know, they're finding all these bodies in the yard. Are they all at different stages of decomposition? Because, I mean, the first one you described was a femur bone. Yeah. So then the next one, or Bert at least, should have been a little bit more obvious to recognize, right? Yes, I think he was because it wasn't too long ago. It was, uh, I think, about two months so whatever a body what is about, I, yeah, yeah. I, don't know. I feel like after two months, it'd be 
pretty hard to recognize for certain, you know? Mm-hmm. Unless you, like, unless you still wearing his clothes. Yeah. I don't know. Uh, mm-hmm. They find a calendar in her home that was writ with, like, little dates written, like, Bert left on this day. And they knew instantly it was, like, planted evidence. Like, she was trying to make it look like, yep, this is legit. See, I wrote it down. He left that day, you know? Um, and then they find out Dorothea had been lying about her age, too. That she looked older than she was, and she was actually in her 50s, but she was claiming to be in her 60s or 70s to appear more, like, grandmotherly and less suspicious and capable of doing these things. So she was also lying about her age. I see. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. And John Sharp said that he had smelled something like death in the room off the kitchen. Um, so he's like, maybe you should check that room out. She didn't let us in there and stuff like that. So Cabrera also noticed that the floor was very cushy in that area. And he realized it was like layered carpets in that room. So like on top of each other. And he pulled them back and you lift the car- he lifted the carpet up and was just like, poof, like this foul stench permeating from there. And the floor was soaked in putrefied body fluid. Um, Ew. Oh, my gosh. That just makes me so disgusted. Like, why not clean it up and then put the carpet on top of it to cover the stain? Mm Mm-hmm. Like, that's just nasty. Disgusting, for sure. Um, They found residue of lye. In the soil as well, which is used to try and stop that kind of smell. Um, And Cabrera is watching TV at his home when he finds out that Dorothea was seen in Los Angeles under a fake name, but she was recognized and arrested at the motel she was staying at. So he flies to L.A. to bring her back to Sacramento. And in the, like plane ride over she tells him i used to be a very good person at some time at one time and when yeah right like that must have been a long long time ago maybe for a week like as a child maybe yeah maybe after you're born i don't know yeah um right so the bodies were all found in a fetal position wrapped in plastic bags and tablecloths, um, all in a similar manner. So they can assume all this is done by the same person. And then after this goes to the media and they find out about this, Cabrera gets another phone call from another family of a man named Everson Gilmel. And they said that he was engaged to Dorothea and that they hadn't been hearing from him and they were very nervous that she had done something to him. Um... So Dorothea and Everson were pen pals from when she was in prison the first time. Um, And when she got out, Everson went to live with her. And the detectives realized that back in 1986, they had found a John Doe that was found in a similar condition to the seven bodies that were found in her yard. Um, And she had ended up killing Everson three weeks after he moved in with her. And she had disposed of his body in a wooden box in the river nearby. And his 
body was found in that box. That's horrible. Yeah. Like, I mean, just why do you think that she just liked killing people? I mean, I thought that at first it was just to rob them, but like, it doesn't sound like that guy had too much to offer. I know. Yeah. People really had a lot to offer, even though they were collecting social security and all that. Like, I mean, they, they were in that home because they needed her help. Right. It's really baffling, but it's like once she had all she thought she could get from somebody, she like got rid of them, you know? Right. You know who this reminds me of? It reminds me of that one lady that would marry, um, she lived in Indiana. She would marry someone and like be with them for like a week and then mm-hmm. uh, kill them. Who yeah. was that? Gun? I don't know. I Is can't that gun? Something gun? She was the one that, like, they basically had a circus right next to her house after it burned down. Beth Gunn? Is that her name? Oh, oh, uh, Belle Gunness. <laughs> Belle Gunness. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I knew we'd get there. Beth Gunn. <laughs> yes. Said. Yeah. Yes. Okay, I remember. You know, that, that, was, that was a little while ago. We, you can yeah, forgive was... us for forgetting her name for a minute. Yeah. A long time ago, but that was a good one. Yeah. That's who uh-huh. she reminds me of. Yeah, true. And so she had been sending postcards to Everson's family and, like, letters all this time. So they didn't know he was, like, actually dead. Um, Like, it's not, like, what not to do. Because if someone were to find out that he was missing, or, like, if they were to find his body and somehow identify him, they'd be able to track it right down to her because she's been sending those letters yeah like he's alive yup um also i would want to see my dad in person in two years not just like writing letters so i also think that's um maybe they weren't super close as family but yeah it's like there's no long game in it like she was really setting herself up to fail i mean all these people have family that are going to connect the dots. Right. Yeah. I just don't... It, this isn't a very logical plan on her part. It's really not. Truly. Um, so they found out she had used these stupefying drugs on all of her victims. And they were a mix of a lot of different tranquilizers. Um... Bill Monroe hoped that his mother, Ruth Monroe's murder, could be among her charges, and the DA agreed to this. He said, yes, we will include your mother's uh, murder with this. So, she's officially charged with nine counts of first-degree murder, and because it's um, such a high number, that would qualify her to get the death penalty if she's found guilty. Um, I mean, yeah, understandable. It'd be... Like, even though California, I didn't even realize, like, that's been allowed in the past 40 years. Yeah. Um, so her victims are Ruth Monroe, that we know of, Ruth Monroe, Everson Gilmouth, Betty Palmer, Vera Faye Martin, Benjamin Fink, Burt Montoya, Dorothy Miller, Leona Carpenter, and James Gallup. And they are all between the ages 52 to 81 years old. So, like, older people in need of help. Um, and in 1980, or July 9th, 1992, 
is when Dorothea's trial begins. Um, John O'Mara is the prosecutor, and he argues that she killed them to get their money and to have control over their bank accounts um, without having to answer to them at all. Even though she already technically didn't have to, because she had, like, she was the payee for a lot of these people. So it really, she could have actually taken care of these people and kept getting their money without killing them. But, but okay. Well, that's what I'm saying. It's like, I I don't, I, I just don't understand how she, like, I think she was just doing it for fun. Yeah. Because she really wasn't gaining a lot from them dying. So right. She's taking, exactly. like, life insurance on them or anything. Exactly, yeah. Um, Dorothea countered, her defense countered, she was actually taking care of these six, sick people and that they all died normally. They died of, like, natural causes, but she had no choice but to put them in her backyard because of her parole, because she knew she wasn't supposed to be caregiving. So, like you were saying earlier, that's exactly what her defense was going for. Um, yeah, that's what I, that's what I would guess, but it's just that there were so many. Yeah. I, it just sounds like, yeah, and the fact that probably all of them have whatever in her their system mm-hmm. yeah. is going to be a little fishy. So, even though she only admits to taking the money and not to murder, she is found guilty and sentenced to life with no parole. And she gets off the death penalty, because that was on the table, because she's only found guilty of three of the murders, and that wasn't enough for the death penalty and the reason keeps going the reason she was only found guilty of three was because there was one juror who believed she was innocent and he was like i don't he knew he couldn't get the other jurors on his side but he said i don't want to condemn her to death because i don't believe she did it so he would only agree to charge her with three murders so it was one juror what yeah isn't that crazy this is like uh in the office when Toby goes back to the Scranton Strangler and offers his neck to say, I know you didn't do it. Yeah, and then, yeah. And then the Scranton Strangler strangles him. <laughs> it's because <laughs> it's, I don't, oh my gosh, that gets me so mad. The evidence is there. Yeah. Like, you believe she's innocent because of what? How she looks? Exactly. That's exactly what it was. He was like, this little old lady can't do this. She's not this nefarious person. No matter did. what, people are evil. It's just that's so messed up. Like, yeah, that gets me so mad that like, you know, I don't know. I understand that the reason why our jurors are like random citizens is like, but I don't know. You get some really dumb people that way. I know. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, imagine being that one person. Oh, if I were the other jurors, I'd be like, I'm going to beat you like this is yeah she's obviously guilty right and it's like i understand if you don't want to condemn her to the death penalty but that's if but the fact that she did this and if that's what the law is as the juror mm-hmm. you can follow that just even if you don't aren't for the death penalty it doesn't matter you are not you're not the one deciding her punishment you're just deciding if she did the crime yeah and right. so I don't think that's fair of the juror because I feel like if the death penalty wasn't on the table, then they would have been like, yeah, she is guilty of that. Like, he would have agreed. Mm-hmm. Yep. Stoopy, so, stoopy, stoopy stoops. Yeah. And then the families 
of the other victims don't get that complete like closure because she's not convicted of their murders. She was not convicted of Everson's, Burt's, or Ruth's murders. They were not included in the three. Not that even Burt's. Are you kidding? No, no. And I don't know how that was determined. It, uh, what I was able to read and stuff didn't like say why she got convicted for those and not others. But yeah, I don't know. Um. Yeah. So, uh, December or. March, I don't know why I said December, March 27th, which is my brother's birthday, um, 2011, Dorothea died in prison at 82 years old. Um, They always do. Yeah. Her home, normally, if something so, like, gruesome happens, normally a home is, like, taken down and rebuilt or something, but her home was built in the 1800s and is protected as a historical artifact so her house can never be taken down and it just is standing there uh, i don't think anyone's ever lived in it after that but it is there it's like this decaying it's artifact now what i wonder if it's haunted who knows or i like don't know are... um, bad things happened in there so i wouldn't put it past that house to be haunted yeah. well you know even though like a lot of people were murdered well but they were paralyzed it's not like they were just like put to sleep and then killed because like if they were just like it's not like they were tortured you know so i'm like just as far as like what creates a ghost i don't even know yeah but um <laughs> like i'm not really talking as if i'm a professional here i'm just talking out of my butt um but i'm thinking it's like they were really tortured but at the same time actually it is pretty tor like it is torture to be paralyzed and know what's going on but not be able to move that is horrifying yeah so even though Uh, it's not it's weird uh it's not like a pain kind of torture it's still like a mental torture torment yeah Yeah. um it was like what what kind of aggression came out in that back room i guess we'll never know yeah so that is dorothea puente um yeah, she's not a great person. Don't trust oh. people just because they seem very sweet. Um, you never. I know. You Moral never... of the story: You never really know. Yeah, honestly, you never really know a person, and you would especially never think that a little old lady is, um, able to commit such crimes. Yeah, it's like you. It doesn't matter what the person looks like; they can still be pure evil yep it's sad it's like you know it's really interesting because on this podcast we do cover a lot of female murderers yeah yeah but i think that this is probably the oldest one that we've covered um yeah i think so like out of anybody not just of the like female ones she's the oldest i would think yeah even though she was actually younger yeah um than she was saying but still still yeah i don't know that's very interesting where'd you get all this information um it is from a tv show called worst roommate ever and it's about people who like kind of do these things like taking 
people and then and I'm killing them. So she was only the first episode. There are like other episodes of other people who do similar things. So I'll probably revisit that show sometime in the future for more cases. Yes, I'm very interested. Um, you know who when we first started this podcast, who we said we were gonna cover and then we never have? Who? Um, New Orleans. Um, what's that house? I'm blanking. Oh, oh, um, the Lalaurie house. Yeah. Okay. Never covered that. that. I think that we. I think it's time. I mean, we did do almost two years. We did do New Orleans, like the vampires, but I did not talk about that house yet. Yeah. Yeah, we've only done one New Orleans. New Orleans case. There's so many that have happened in New Orleans. I know the uh, the axe murder whoever yeah i want to talk about him too new orleans you're no wonder you're one of the ghost capital of the world one of the what am i trying to say one of the most haunted cities (laughs) in america um for a reason you guys have a lot of stuff going on there yeah that and seattle so yeah nothing in common besides that besides ghosts so okay yeah yeah should we do that next time I think so. Okay. We got the we'll time it. for it. That one's going to be a big one. Yeah. All right. You know, I'm I'm down for a good old New Orleans story. Always. I know you are. I know. Well, that's when we first even started talking about doing this podcast two years ago. Yeah. I remember that was one of the cases and we had talked about how we want to do it. And then it just never came around yet. And now's the time. Now it's is time. the time. All right. Well, I'm really interested to hear more about it. Okay. What you pick up on it. But anyway, on that note, I'm Casey. I'm Emily. And you just heard a sprinkle of sugar, a dash of murder.